little over 3,500 years ago, the Israelite nation, who three months earlier had left the land of Egypt, came and camped down at the foot of Mount Sinai. And there at Mount Sinai, they stayed for about a year. And during that year, of course, Moses went up to the top of Mount Sinai, and there he received from God what we know today as the basic tenets of what we would call the Old Testament. There God described for the Israelite people, who now were his chosen people, the people from whom the Messiah would come, that he wanted to have a covenant relationship with them. He wanted to do things for them, and at the same time, he expected that they would do things for him as far as their obedience and their love is concerned. While Moses was on top of Mount Sinai, he received from God what we might call today the Ten Commandments. These Ten Commandments was the core, if you will, of the Old Covenant or the Old Testament It was the foundation for which the principles of this covenant that God was going to have with the Israelite people were established. It was on these ten commandments, if you will, that the people of God that were part of His covenant would rely on as the basis for everything else that was a part of the law of Moses or the Old Testament law. Now we understand and appreciate the fact that this was Ten Commandments that was given to the people of Israel. And the people of Israel are the only ones who are under the Old Covenant or the Old Testament law. But yet at the same time, when you look at the Ten Commandments, you find what we might call universal laws. Things that were already established before God put them on these tablets of stone with His own finger. For example, long before God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, it was wrong to murder someone. The Ten Commandments very clearly say, Thou shalt not murder, but yet, before that command was even given and written on these stones, we know that when Cain killed Abel, that he was punished because it is unlawful for a man to spill another man's blood because there is life in the blood. And therefore Cain was banished because he murdered his brother Abel, which is the very first time that we have a murder recorded in history. And even as we move into the New Testament age, we know that Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14 tells us that when Jesus died on the cross, he blotted out the handwriting of ordinances which was against us, which was contrary to us, and took them away, nailing them to his cross. In other words, we're no longer under the old law or the Old Testament, we now live in the New Testament age, but yet, of all the commandments, they all have been carried over into the New Testament time, except for one, keeping the Sabbath, because that was strictly an Israelite thing, and it involved worshiping on Saturday, and of course, we worship on the first day of the week. My point is that here is uh, a perfect set of commandments, if you will. God narrowed it down into basically 268 words, what is the core principle of what it means to follow God. And you can see the beauty of these commandments because no matter how hard you try, no matter how long you think about it, there cannot be an 11th commandment. Sit down and try to do that sometime. If you had to add one more commandment to this that really wasn't covered by the others, what would that 11th commandment be? 
There's no way in the world you can find another one because God in His infinite wisdom and knowledge has provided us with commandments that cover every aspect of life. This morning, I want us to zero in on the very first commandment where God told the people of Israel and still tells us today, you shall have no other gods before me. It is a sad thing that we live in a world today where, first of all, people don't acknowledge the fact that there is a God. But maybe even a sadder thing is there are those in the world today who acknowledge the fact that they believe that there is a God. They acknowledge the fact that there has to be a God, but yet they're not willing to follow Him or do the things that He says. Paul was preaching on Morris Hill in Acts chapter 17 in verse 28 when he is describing to the, the, those people there about the unknown God, a God that they knew existed but they weren't quite sure about Him. He referred to this God as being the one in whom we live and breathe and have our being. In other words, God is everything that we're supposed to be. God is supposed to be in us. We're supposed to be like one with God. It'd be just like taking a fish and putting him up in a tree. It wouldn't be right. And when we don't have God, it's the same way. Or taking a bird and putting him in the middle of the ocean. It just doesn't work. And it's the same way when we don't have God as a part of our lives. Because everything that we are is about God. And so I think it would be useful for us this morning to think about this very first commandment that was written on those tablets of stone with the finger of God given to Moses on Mount Sinai. But really, it's the basis for all the other commandments, and it's still the basis for us today. And I'm going to describe this commandment, and to help us to remember it, each one of the points I'm going to make this morning begin with the letter D. And maybe that will help you keep it fresh in your mind as you go out throughout the rest of this week. But as you think about this particular commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, I want you to think about the fact, the declaration of the commandment. Notice what God says in this commandment. He says, I am the Lord your God. It's not, I may be. It's not that I want to be. It's not that this is something that we can consider and think about for a few moments and make our own decision. God has already set the stage and already has told us the facts. It's simply this. He says, I am the Lord your God. As we think about that, I want you to think about how through all of nature and through everything that we come in contact with, how that is constantly being declared. For example... It's declared by nature. As we look around us, we have to acknowledge the fact that there is something or someone greater than ourselves. The psalmist reminds us in Psalm 19 and verse 1, we can see how that the heavens declare your glory and the firmament or the rest of the earth declare your handiwork. In other words, we can look around and see the trees that we see this morning and feel the warmth of the sunshine and see all the beauties of both the heavens and the earth and we understand and appreciate that this had to come from somewhere. In fact, Paul in Romans chapter 1 and verse 20, he reminds us that, that the evidence of God is clearly exhibited 
in the world that we see around us. We can look at nature and understand and appreciate that this was all done by the power of God. Now, I realize that many in the scientific world today tries to put us in direct conflict with that particular statement. And they say, well, you know, that just falls, flies in the face of, of the laws of nature and the laws of science to say that God created all these things. Well, my question to you is, where did those laws come from? Who established those laws that nature goes by? Who established those laws for which science goes by? You think about the world that we live in today and you think about the fact that the tiniest cell that you have in your body is more complex than all the streets and the traffic in New York City. When you think about the fact that we go from the smallest thing to the largest thing and that is the universe in which we live in. And you think about the fact that the speed of light is 186,000 186, miles per second And yet scientists tells us that as that light travels for a billion years, we still not reach the end of our universe. And you're trying to tell me that that just happened by accident? You're trying to tell me that that this all just was some big uh, coincidence that everything all came together? That somehow or another that that it just, just kind of happened out of nothing? As sure as there is a watch on my wrist, there is a watchmaker. As sure as this building we are in proves that there is a builder. As sure as this world exists, it proves it was a creator. It takes far more faith to believe in the monkey myth than it does to believe in the creation fact. But the point I want you to understand and appreciate this morning is when God says, I am the Lord your God, He is saying you simply look around you and you understand and appreciate the fact that something more powerful than yourself brought this world into existence. But not only does nature declare it, conscience also declares it. It's interesting, if you do a study of the history of civilization, Going back as far as man can go back in their study of civilization, mankind has always had the desire to worship something. Mankind always understood that there was something greater than themselves, and therefore, uh, if they did not have a knowledge of the true and living God, they still put something up to worship, because they understood that this couldn't be all that there was. There had to be something greater than themselves. And so every civilization that we've ever known about had some type of hierarchy where they were worshipped something greater than themselves. Now how do you explain that? What is it in mankind that makes them want to worship? Well, I think the wise man Solomon put it in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11 when he says, I have set eternity in their hearts. In other words, they under, God, Solomon understood this always been the case with mankind because there is a God and because God created mankind that within mankind there would be this ideal of wanting to always worship. Always putting something up on a pedestal because they knew it had to be something greater than themselves. Just like the song we sing from Psalm uh, 45 and verse 1, As the deer pants for the water... So my soul pants for you, or longs for you. 
our conscience tells us that there is indeed a God. But also, and this is so important, it is declared by Scripture. It's interesting as you read through the Bible, the Bible never tries to prove that God exists. It just simply declares it. In the very first verse of the very first chapter of the very first book, the book of Genesis, it simply begins with this phrase, in the beginning, God. And that's all the Bible has to say about it. In the beginning, God. There's nothing else that is needed. Once God has declared Himself, then the Scripture doesn't need to defend itself any longer. It doesn't have to refute atheism. It just simply states the fact, and you see this all throughout the Bible, it simply takes and acknowledges the fact that God is God and we are His creation. And so when we look at the very first commandment, the declaration there is, I am the Lord your God. It's declared by nature, it's declared by conscience, and it's declared by Scripture. But also as we look at this particular commandment, there's something else that stands out to me. And that is the discrimination of the commandment. The second, or third verse of Exodus chapter 20 says, You shall have no other gods before me. God is not only a God that wants us to follow Him, but He is also a God that doesn't want us to follow anything else. He is the God that exists, but He also knows that there's no such thing as other gods as far as His equal or as far as anything else that should desire our attention. Idolatry was a big problem in Moses' day. In fact, if you remember, when Moses was on top of Mount Sinai and he received the Ten Commandments, while he was up there, the people got bored and got concerned that Moses had been up there for so long. So what did the people do? They went in and enlisted Aaron and asked Aaron if he would take all the gold that they had got, gotten from the people of Egypt and to melt it down and to make them their own golden calf, their own idol. And you remember how when Moses came down from the mountain and he saw that the people were engaged in idol worship, how that he broke the two tablets of stone. The very first commandment, after God saying, I am, singular, I am the Lord your God, that excludes everything else and therefore there cannot be any other gods before me. Idolatry was a problem in Moses' day. It was also a problem in Jesus' day. In fact, go back and study the history of Greek mythology, which was the prevailing uh, religion, if you will, during the time of Jesus. The Greeks had over 3,000 different gods or idols that they worshipped. It was a problem in Moses' day, it's a problem in Jesus' day, and I would tell you this morning that it's still a problem in our day. No, we're not going to bow down before some goofy idol. Uh, we feel foolish doing that, but yet in our lives, sometimes we have the idol of money. Sometimes we have the idol of friends. Sometimes we have the idol of success. Sometimes we have the idol of entertainment. Sometimes we have the idol of nature. Sometimes we have the idol of health. In other words, there are things in our life that oftentimes we put before God, and that becomes our idol. In fact, the number one test for this particular idea, the discrimination of the commandment, is simply this. 
If there's anything that you put above God, then that has become an idol for you. You may not bow down to a golden calf. You may not bow down to some carved piece of wood. You may not have some kind of ceremony where you chant something and bow down before an idol. But if you put anything above the Lord your God, then you have made that particular thing an idol. And these may be good and wholesome things. It may be your spouse. It may be your children. It may be your job. It could be a number of things that in and of themselves is not wrong, but if you make them, that, make them your priority instead of making God your priority, then that has become an idol for you. Jesus reminded us on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. When God says, I am the Lord your God, that was a commandment that had discrimination in it because He does not allow any other gods in our lives. But there's something else that takes place here, and that is the demand of the commandment. He says, I am the Lord thy God. In other words, if he truly is God, then he truly is Lord. In other words, if he is the creator of everything, and he is the most powerful entity in the universe, if he is the one that not only sustains us, but one day will judge us, then the very idea of Him being God also makes Him Lord. And we need to make Him the one who is in charge of our lives. It's no wonder that when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, that He didn't start with the other commandments. He didn't say, honor and father your father and mother, let that be the first one. He didn't say, thou shalt not steal, let that be the first one. He didn't say, keep the Sabbath day holy, and let that be the first one. No, He wanted the very first commandment to set the stage for the rest of the commandments, because if the first commandment was not followed, then there's no way in the world the rest of them are going to be followed. He says, I am the Lord your God. You shall not have any other gods before me. And therefore, there is the demand of the commitment, of the commandment. We mentioned earlier that there are those that do not believe in God. And the psalmist in Psalm 14 and verse 1 says that if any person says in their heart there is no God, he is a fool. But a bigger fool would be someone who believes in God, but yet aren't willing to do what he says. Romans chapter 1 verses 21 and 22 There's the idea of the old pagan world and how that they could look around, as we mentioned in verse 20, and how they could see that there is indeed a God. And so they knew that there was a God, but yet they did not give the glory. Neither were they thankful. And their foolish hearts were darkened. And professing themselves to be wise, they became as fools. Psalmist says, the person who says in their heart is no, there is no God, he is a fool. Paul says those who know that there is a God, but yet does nothing about it, they too are a fool. The very declaration of the, of the very demand of the commandment is how that he now needs to be the Lord. If we believe that there is a God, if we believe that he is the creator of this world, if we believe he holds our eternal destination in our hands, then we need to submit to that God and do what he says. Well, let's add one final thing, and then the lesson is yours. The discovery of the commandment. He says, I am the Lord 
your God. In other words, it does no good just to acknowledge the fact that there is a God. It does us no good just simply to believe that there is a being that we call God. But what God wants us to do is not just acknowledge that fact, but He wants to become our God. He says, I am the Lord, your God. In other words, He wants us to have a personal relationship with Him. He wants us to do more than just simply acknowledge that He exists, and maybe even more than just simply obey His commands. He wants us to have a personal relationship with Him. The very beginning of the lesson, I mentioned Acts chapter 17 and verse 28, where Paul says, it's in Him that we live and breathe and have our being. In other words, God wants to become a part of us. He wants to be a part of our lives. Well, someone might ask, how in the world does one do that? How, does, how, does we, how do we make God our God? How can we finish the statement, I am the Lord your God. How can we do that? Well, first of all, we can take everything that we've talked about this morning. We can look at nature and understand and appreciate the fact that everything that we get to see in this world comes from God. James reminds us in James chapter 1 and verse 17 that every good and every perfect gift comes from above. And there's no changing in that. And so this morning when we leave this place and we see the sunshine, or later on if we experience the rain, when we see a beautiful flower or we see, uh, hear a beautiful bird sing, we acknowledge the fact that this is from God and we want to appreciate and be thankful for all the wonderful things He has given us. But we also can be more personal with God when we allow Him to control our lives. We talked about earlier how that conscience tells us there has to be some higher power. We have to understand and appreciate that we don't rule our own lives, and therefore we need to attune our conscience toward God's conscience, if you will, or His will. But also, the thing we need to understand and appreciate this morning is that the Bible tells us that if we are going to have a personal relationship with God, then we need to obey His commands. And those commands that we need to obey initially are the commands that are necessary for a person to become a Christian. Jesus reminds us in John chapter 14 and verse 6, He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh to the Father except by me. Jesus was one who was sent to this earth so that we could come to the Father. And that means we need to believe that God exists and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 says, for he that, that if you're going to have faith, for without faith it's impossible to please God, for you must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. In other words, we need to begin this journey of having a personal relationship with God, the fact that it's based on the fact that we believe that He exists, and not only do we believe that He exists, but He rewards us here on this earth, and He's going to reward us in eternity. And predicated upon that belief, we understand and appreciate that we no longer can control our own life. We can't keep heading in the direction we were before, but we need to head in a different direction. Uh, the Greek word for it is metaneo. It means to repent or turn. That same sermon when Paul was preaching on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, when he was trying to explain to those Athenians that it is this God, this unknown God, that we live and breathe and have our, our being. He went a little bit later on in the, in the same chapter in verse 30, and he says, There was a time that God winked at the ignorance of man, but now commandeth all men 
everywhere to repent. If there is indeed a God that in whom we live and breathe and have our being, then that means that we need to repent. We need to turn our lives over to Him. Jesus tells us that, Nay, except you repent, you all likewise perish. But that repentance also means that we're willing to tell others about Jesus Christ and about God. Uh, Romans 10.10 reminds us that without with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. But there's also another command, if you will, the final command, the command that moves us from being lost to being saved, that moves us to being a true uh, a, a follower of Satan to being a follower of God. A command that is necessary, if you will, to have our sins washed away so that we can be in a right relationship with God. Jesus tells us in Mark 16, 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. So it's no wonder after Peter hearing that particular command, when he preached that very first gospel sermon on the day of Pentecost, he came to the conclusion of his lesson or the invitation, if you will. He says there in Acts chapter 2 and verse 36, he says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly, that God hath made this same Jesus, whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. It says, when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? In other words, what do we need to do in order to be saved? And Peter tells them in verse 38, he tells them to repent, which we've, already, which we've already talked about. He told them to repent and be baptized for the remission of their sins, or the removal of their sins. As you go through the book of Acts, you see all these different people who are converted to Christianity, who are brought into the church, who are being saved. And sometimes you'll find belief mentioned, sometimes you'll find repentance mentioned, sometimes you'll find confession mentioned. But in each and every case, you always find baptism mentioned. In fact, the very last time that baptism is mentioned as far as the conversion of someone, we find in Acts 22 and verse 16, where the preacher Ananias is talking to Saul, who would one day become the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul, who believed in Jesus Christ, he saw the resurrected Lord on the road to Damascus. Here was a man who was repentful because he had spent the last three days praying and fasting because of his sins. But when the preacher got there in Acts 22 and verse 16, what did he uh, tell Saul? He says, And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. In other words, if we truly believe that we should have no other gods before us, if we truly believe that there is only one God, then we're going to obey His commands. And we're going to do what He wants us to do today before it's everlastingly too late. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, predicated upon your belief, predicated upon your repentance, and predicated upon your willing to confess the name of Jesus Christ, We humbly invite you to become a Christian this morning by putting on your faith in baptism. We hope this lesson also for those of us who are Christians will strengthen our resolve to put no other gods before us, but the only one true God, the one that said, I am the Lord, your God. If you have a need, won't you please come as together we stand and sing.